Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 65 Full of Business and Pleasure The day after the meeting at the play table, Joss arrayed himself with unusual care and splendor, Without saying a word to any of his family about the events of the previous night, he went out early and made for the Elephant Hotel. Because of the festivities, the hotel was full. Mr. Joss made inquiries in clumsy German and was directed to the very top of the house, past the rooms where traveling peddlers, tumblers, bagmen, students, and small tradesmen lived. Here, Becky had a little nest— as dirty a little refuge as ever beauty lay hid in. Becky liked the life. She was at home with peddlers, tumblers, students, and all. She had inherited a wild, roving nature. The din, the stir, the drink, the smoke, the songs and swagger of the students, and the general buzz and hum of the place pleased the little woman, even when her luck was down and she could not pay her bill. How pleasant was the bustle to her now that her purse was full of the money which little Georgie had won for her the night before. As Joss came creaking and puffing up the final stairs and began to wipe his face and look for number 92, the door of the opposite chamber, number 90, was open. A student was lying on the bed, smoking a long pipe, whilst another student in long yellow hair and a braided coat was actually on his knees at number 92, bawling through the keyhole. "'Go away!' said a well-known voice from within, which made Joss thrill. "'I'm expecting somebody. My grandpapa. He mustn't see you there.' "'Angel Englanderin,' bellowed the kneeling student, "'do dine with us at the inn in the park. "'We will have roast pheasants and porter. "'We shall die if you don't.' "'That we will,' said the young nobleman on the bed. "'Joss overheard all this, "'though he did not understand the German they spoke. "'As he approached, the student started up "'and bounced into his own room, "'where Joss heard him laughing with his comrade.' Joss was standing disconcerted when the door of 92 opened and Becky's little head peeped out full of archness and mischief. "'It's you,' she said, coming out. "'How I have been waiting for you! Oh, stop! Not yet! In one minute you shall come in!' In that instant she put a rouge pot, a brandy bottle, and a plate of broken meat into the bed, smoothed her hair, and finally let in her visitor.' She wore a pink domino, a trifle faded and soiled, but her arms shone out from the loose sleeves very white and fair, and it was tied round her waist so as to set off her trim little figure. She led Joss by the hand into her garret. "'Come in,' she said. "'Come and talk to me. Sit yonder on the chair.' And she gave his hand a little squeeze." 
she placed herself on the bed, not on the bottle and plate, you may be sure, and there she sat and talked with her old admirer. How little the years have changed you, she said, with a look of tender interest. I should have known you anywhere. What a comfort it is amongst strangers to see once more the frank, honest face of an old friend. The frank, honest face, to tell the truth, at this moment bore any expression but one of openness and honesty. It was, on the contrary, much perturbed. Joss was surveying the queer little apartment in which he found his old flame. One of her gowns hung over the bed, with another on the hook of the door. Her bonnet obscured half the looking-glass, on which lay the prettiest little pair of bronze boots. A French novel was on the bedside table. "'I should have known you anywhere,' she continued. "'A woman never forgets some things, and you were the first man I ever... I ever saw.' "'What was I, really?' said Joss. "'Oh, God bless my soul! You don't say so!' When I came with your sister from Chiswick, I was scarcely more than a child, Becky said. How is that dear girl? Oh, her husband was a sad, wicked man, and the poor dear was jealous of me, as if I cared about him when there was somebody. But no, don't let us talk of old times. She passed her handkerchief of tattered lace across her eyelids. Is not this a strange place? she continued, for a woman who has lived in a very different world. I've had so many griefs and wrongs, Joseph Sedley. I've been made to suffer so cruelly that I can't stay still in any place but wander about, restless and unhappy. All my friends have been false to me. All. There is no such thing as an honest man in the world. I was the truest wife that ever lived, though I married my husband out of pique, because somebody else... But, no, never mind that. I was true to my husband, and he trampled upon me and deserted me. I was the fondest mother to my darling child, my hope and joy, and they... they tore it from me. She put her hand to her heart with a passionate gesture of despair, burying her face for a moment on the bed. The brandy bottle inside clinked up against the plate. Both were moved, no doubt, by her grief. Joss was a good deal frightened and affected at seeing her in this condition. She began to tell her story, a tale so neat, simple, and artless that it was quite evident that a white-robed angel escaped from heaven was before Joss, on the bed, sitting on the brandy bottle. They had a very long, amicable, and confidential talk, during which Joss Sedley was somehow made aware that Becky's heart had first learned to beat at his enchanting presence, that George Osborne had certainly paid court to Becky, but that she never gave him the least encouragement, and that she had never ceased to think about Joss from the very first day she had seen him. Though, of course, her duties as a married woman were paramount, duties which she would preserve to her dying day, or until the bad climate in which Colonel Crawley was living should release her from a marriage that his cruelty had made odious. Joss went away, convinced that she was the most virtuous and fascinating of women, and considering all sorts of benevolent schemes for her welfare. 
She ought to return to society. She must quit that place and take a quiet lodging. Amelia must come and befriend her. He would go and see to it and consult with the Major. She wept tears of heartfelt gratitude as she parted from him, and the gallant stout gentleman stooped to kiss her hand. So Becky bowed Joss out of her little garret with as much grace as if it was a palace, and when he had disappeared down the stairs, the students came out of their hole, and she amused herself by mimicking Joss to them as she munched her cold bread and sausage and drank her favourite brandy and water. Joss walked over to Dobbin's lodgings and there solemnly told him Becky's affecting history, without, however, mentioning the business of the night before. And the two gentlemen laid their heads together and consulted about how to be useful to Mrs. Becky. As for Mrs. Amelia, she was a woman of such a soft and foolish disposition that when she heard of anybody unhappy, her heart straightway melted. If she begged pardon of all her servants for troubling them to answer the bell, and apologized to a shop-boy who showed her a piece of silk, the idea that an old acquaintance was miserable was sure to soften her heart. When the Major heard from Joss of his sentimental adventure, he was not, it must be confessed, nearly as much pleased and interested as Joseph was. On the contrary, he said, "'That little minx, has she come to light again?' He had never liked Becky, but had mistrusted her from the very first moment when her green eyes had looked at and turned away from his own. That little devil brings mischief. That little devil brings mischief wherever she goes, the Major said, disrespectfully. That little devil brings mischief wherever she goes, the Major said, disrespectfully. Who knows what sort of life she has been leading? And what business has she here alone? Don't tell me about enemies. An honest woman always has friends. Why has she left her husband? I remember the way in which the confounded black lad used to cheat poor George. Wasn't there a scandal about their separation? I think I heard something. Joss tried in vain to convince him that Becky was an injured and virtuous female. Well, well, let's ask Mrs. George said the Major. Let us go and consult her. She knows what is right in such matters. Hmm, Amy is all very well, said Joss, who did not happen to be in love with his sister. Very well. By gad, sir, she's the finest lady I ever met in my life, bounced out the Major. Let us ask her if this woman ought to be visited or not. I will be content with her verdict." The artful Major was thinking that Emmy had been deservedly jealous of Rebecca, never mentioning her name, but with shrinking and terror. And a jealous woman never forgives, thought Dobbin. So they went to ask her. Amelia, my dear, said Joss, I have had the most extraordinary adventure. A most interesting old friend of yours has just arrived here, and I should like you to see her. Who is it? said Amelia. It is a woman whom I dislike very much, said the Major doggedly, and whom you have no cause to love. It is Rebecca. I am sure it is Rebecca, Amelia said, blushing. You're right, Dobbin answered. 
Brussels, Waterloo, old griefs and memories rushed back into Amelia's gentle heart. Don't let me see her. I couldn't see her. I told you so, Dobbin said to Joss. Oh, she is, she is very unhappy and, and all oh, that sort of thing, Joss urged. She is poor and unprotected and has been ill, and that scoundrel of a husband has deserted her. Ah, said Amelia. She hasn't a friend in the world, Joss went on. And she said she thought she might trust in you. Oh, she's so miserable, Emmy. She has been almost mad with grief. Her story quite affected me, upon my honor. Her family has been most cruel to her. Poor creature, Amelia said. And if she has no friend, she thinks she'll die. Joss proceeded in a low, tremulous voice. God bless my soul. Do you know that she tried to kill herself? I saw a bottle of laudanum in her room. Oh, such a miserable little room at a third-rate house, the elephant, up in the roof. This did not seem to affect Emmy. She's beside herself with grief, Joss resumed. Her agonies are quite frightful. She had a little boy, the same age as Georgie. Yes, I remember, Emmy remarked. Well, the most beautiful child ever seen, Joss said. A perfect angel who adored his mother. The ruffians tore him, shrieking out of her arms, and have never allowed him to see her. Oh, dear Joseph, Emmy cried out, starting up at once. Let us go and see her this minute. And she ran into her room, fetched her bonnet and shawl, and ordered Dobbin to follow. He saw there was nothing for it but to obey. It was number ninety-two, up four flights of stairs. Joss said, not very willing to ascend the steps again, but he stood in his drawing-room and watched the pair marching through the market. It was as well that Becky saw them too from her garret, where she and the students were chattering and laughing about the appearance of her grandpapa. She had time to dismiss them before the landlord of the elephant led Amelia up the stairs to her room. "'Gracious lady!' said the landlord, knocking at Becky's door. He had not been so courteous the day before. "'Who is it?' Becky said, putting out her head, and she gave a little scream. There stood Emmy in a tremble, and Dobbin with his cane. He stood watching and very much interested, but Emmy sprang forward with open arms and forgave Rebecca at that moment and embraced her with all her heart.' Ah, poor wretch, when was your lip ever pressed by such pure kisses? Chapter 66 Amantium Irae Amelia's kindness touched even such a hardened little reprobate as Becky. She returned to Emmy's caresses and kind speeches with something very like gratitude, and an emotion which, if it was not lasting, for a moment was almost genuine. That was a lucky stroke of hers about the child, torn from her arms, shrieking. It was this that had won her friend back, and it was one of the very first things our poor simple Emmy began to talk about. And so they took your darling child from you. Oh, Rebecca, oh, my poor dear friend, I know what it is to lose a boy, but please, heaven, yours will be restored to you. The child, 
Oh, yes, my agonies were frightful, Becky owned, not perhaps without a twinge of conscience. It jarred upon her to have to tell lies instantly in reply to so much confidence. But that is the misfortune of being this kind of forgery. One fib leads to another, and so the number of your lies multiplies, and the danger of detection increases every day. My agonies were terrible, Becky continued. I thought I should die. I had a brain fever, during which my doctor gave me up, and, and I recovered. And here I am, poor and friendless. How old is he? Emmy asked. Eleven, said Becky. Eleven? Why, he was born the same year as Georgie, who was— Oh, I know, I know, cried Becky, who had in fact quite forgotten Rawdon's age. Grief has made me forget so many things, dearest Amelia. I am very much changed, half wild sometimes. He was eleven when they took him away from me. Oh, bless his sweet face. I have never seen it again. Was he fair or dark? went on that absurd little Emmy. Show me his hair. Becky almost laughed. Oh, not today, love. Some other time when my trunks arrive. Oh, poor Becky, said Emmy. How thankful I ought to be. She began to think, as usual, how her son was the handsomest and cleverest boy in the world. You will see, my Georgie, was the best thing she could think of to console Becky. And so, the two women talked for an hour or more, Becky giving her friend a full version of her history. She showed how her marriage with Rawdon Crawley had always been viewed by the family with hostility, how her artful sister-in-law had poisoned her husband's mind against her, how she had borne everything, poverty, neglect, coldness, for the sake of her child, how finally she had been driven into demanding a separation from her husband when the wretch had asked her to sacrifice her own reputation so that he might get advancement from that powerful but unprincipled man, the Marquis of Stain, the atrocious monster. This part of her eventful history Becky told with the utmost delicacy and indignant virtue. When she was forced to fly from her husband's roof, she said, the coward had pursued his revenge by taking her child from her, and thus she was now a wanderer, poor, friendless, and wretched. Emmy quivered with indignation at the conduct of the miserable Rawdon and the unprincipled stain, and while Becky was reciting the separation scene from the child, Emmy retired behind her pocket-handkerchief. Meanwhile, the Major, who did not wish to interrupt and grew rather tired of creaking about the narrow stairs, descended to the ground floor of the house and into the great room common to all the tenants, a room full of smoke and liberally sprinkled with beer. All sorts of people were collected here, love-sellers and linen merchants, students and idlers, playing cards on the sloppy, beery tables. The waiter brought the major a mug of beer, and he took out a cigar and a newspaper until Amelia should come down. The two students from room 90 came in and called for a butterbroad and beer. The pair sat down by the major and fell into a conversation in German which he could not help overhearing. It was mainly about duels and drinking bouts at the university, from which they had come with Becky, as it appeared, in order to attend the bridal fetes at Pumpernickel. 
After the fat grandfather went away, there came a pretty little Englishwoman, said one. I heard them chattering together. We must take the tickets for her concert, said the other. Have you any money, Max? Bah! Last time she sold many tickets, but she went off without singing. She said yesterday that her pianist had fallen ill at Dresden. She cannot sing, it is my belief. Her voice is cracked. I heard her trying out of her window an English ballad called De Rose Upon de Belgony. No, we'll take none of her tickets. She won money at the gambling table last night. I saw her. She made a little English boy play for her. Another mug of beer? And having buried their blonde whiskers in the drink, they swaggered off into the fair. The Major understood that their talk related to Becky. The little devil is at her old tricks, he thought, and he smiled as he recalled her desperate flirtation with Joss and the ludicrous end of that adventure. He and George had often laughed over it, until George was also caught in the little Circe's toils, and had an understanding with her which his comrades suspected, but preferred to ignore. William was too ashamed to ask about that disgraceful mystery, although once George had alluded to it. It was on the morning of Waterloo, as the young men stood surveying the black masses of Frenchmen opposite their line. I have been mixing in a foolish intrigue with a woman, George said. If I fall, I hope Emmy will never know of that business. I wish to God it had never been begun. And William had soothed poor George's widow with the fact that Osborne, on the first day of battle, spoke gravely and affectionately of his wife. And so this devil is still going on with her intrigues, thought William. I wish she were a hundred miles from here. She brings mischief wherever she goes. He was thinking this when somebody tapped his shoulder, and he looked up and saw Amelia. This woman had a way of tyrannizing over Major Dobbin. She ordered him about and made him fetch and carry, just as if he was a great Newfoundland dog. He liked, so to speak, to jump into the water if she told him to, and to trot behind her with her bag in his mouth. This history has been written to very little purpose if the reader had not perceived that the Major was a spoony. "'Why did you not wait for me upstairs, sir?' she said, with a little toss of her head. "'I couldn't stand up in the passage.' he answered, and delighted to take her out of the horrid, smoky place. He would have walked off without paying if the waiter had not stopped him. Emmy laughed. She called him a naughty man. He wasn't. She was in high spirits and tripped across the marketplace very briskly, wanting to see Joss that instant. They found him in his saloon on the first floor. He had been anxiously pacing the room and biting his nails during the past hour, whilst Emmy was closeted with Becky. "'Well,' said Joss, "'oh, the poor dear creature, how she has suffered,' Emmy said. "'Oh, God bless my soul, yes,' Joss said, wagging his head so that his cheeks quivered like jellies. "'She may have Payne's room,' Emmy continued, "'and Payne may go upstairs.' Payne was her English maid, who passed her time chiefly in grumbling and in stating her intention to return to her native Clapham. Why, 
"'You don't mean to say you are going to have that woman in the house?' cried the Major, jumping up. "'Of course we are,' said Amelia. "'Oh, don't be angry and break the furniture, Major Dobbin. Of course we are going to have her here.' "'Of course, my dear,' Joss said. "'The poor creature, after all her sufferings, her wicked husband having taken her child away from her.' Here she doubled her two little fists in a way that charmed the Major. The poor dear thing, quite alone and forced to give singing lessons. Take lessons, my dear Mrs. George, cried the Major, but don't have her in the house. Poe, said Joss. I'm astonished at you, Major William. Why, now is the time to help her, when she is so miserable. The oldest friend I ever had— "'She was not always your friend, Amelia,' the Major said, for he was quite angry. Emmy, looking the Major almost fiercely in the face, said, "'For shame, Major Dobbin!' and walked out of the room with a most majestic air. "'To allude to that,' she said, once shut in her own room. "'Oh, it was cruel of him to remind me of it!' She looked up at George's picture. If I had forgiven it, ought he to have spoken? No, and it is from his own lips that I know how wicked and groundless my jealousy was, and that you were pure, oh, you were pure, my saint in heaven. She paced the room, trembling and indignant. Leaning on the chest of drawers over which George's picture hung, she gazed at it. Its eyes seemed to reproach her. The early dear memories of that brief time of love rushed back. The wound bled afresh, and oh, how bitterly! It couldn't be. Never, never. Poor Dobbin. That unlucky word had undone the work of many a year. The long labor of love and constancy. A word was spoken, and down fell the fair palace of hope. Away flew the bird, which he had been trying all his life to lure. William nevertheless continued to implore sadly, most energetically, to beware of Rebecca. He urged Joss not to receive her. He asked him to inquire about her at least, told him how he had heard that she was in the company of gamblers, pointed out how she and Crowley had misled poor George into ruin, and how she was now parted from her husband, perhaps for good reason. What a dangerous companion she would be for his sister, who knew nothing of the affairs of the world. Had William been less violent or more dexterous, he might have succeeded. But Joss was jealous of the airs of superiority which he fancied the Major showed towards him, and he began a blustering speech about his competency to defend his own honour, his desire not to have his affairs meddled with, his intention to rebel against the Major, when the stormy conversation was ended by the arrival of Mrs. Becky with her meagre baggage. She greeted her host with affectionate respect and made a shrinking salutation to Major Dobbin, who her instinct told her was her enemy. The bustle of her arrival brought Amelia out of her room. Emmy embraced her guest with the greatest warmth and took no notice of the Major, except to fling him an angry look, the most unjust and scornful glance that had perhaps ever appeared on that poor little woman's face. Dobbin, 
indignant at the injustice, not at the defeat, made her a haughty bow and left. Emmy was particularly lively and affectionate to Rebecca, and installed her guest in her room with eager activity. Georgie came in from the fete at dinner-time to find a lady at the table instead of Major Dobbin. "'Hello! Where's Dob?' he asked. "'Major Dobbin is dining out, I suppose,' his mother said, and drawing the boy to her, kissed him and introduced him to Mrs. Crawley. "'This is my boy, Rebecca,' Mrs. Osborne said, as much as to say, "'Can the world produce anything like that?' Becky looked at him with rapture and pressed his hand fondly. Dear boy, he is just like my... But emotion choked her speech. But Amelia understood. However, Mrs. Crawley ate a very good dinner. During the meal, Georgie eyed her and listened to her. At the dessert, Emmy was gone out to the kitchen. Joss was in his great chair, dozing. Georgie and the new arrival sat close to each other, and at last he laid down the nutcrackers. "'I say,' said Georgie. "'What do you say?' Becky said, laughing. "'You're the lady I saw in the mask at the Rouge et Noir.' "'Hush, you little sly creature,' Becky said, taking up his hand and kissing it. "'Your uncle was there, too, and Mamma mustn't know.' "'Oh, by no means. "'You see, we are good friends already,' Becky said to Emma as she re-entered. "'Meanwhile, William, in a state of great indignation, "'walked about the town wildly until he fell upon the chargé d'affaires, "'tapeworm, who invited him to dinner. "'He took the opportunity to ask the diplomat "'whether he knew anything about a certain Mrs. Rawdon Crawley, "'and Tapeworm, who of course knew all the London gossip, "'poured into the Major's ears such a history as astonished him. "'Tapeworm knew everything, and a great deal besides, "'and made the most astounding revelations. "'When Dobbin said that Mrs. Osborne and Mr. Sedley "'had taken Becky into their house, "'Tapeworm burst into a peal of laughter "'and asked if they had not better send to the prison "'and take in one or two of the gentlemen in shaved heads and chains. "'Amelia was going to the court ball that night, "'and the Major decided to tell her this news there.' He went home, dressed in his uniform, and repaired to court in hopes to see Mrs. Osborne. She never came. When he returned to his lodgings, all the lights in the Sedley house were out. I don't know what sort of a night's rest he had with this frightful secret in bed with him. Early in the morning, he sent his servant across the way with a note saying that he wished very particularly to speak with her. A message came back to say that Mrs. Osborne was exceedingly unwell and was keeping to her room. She, too, had been awake all night, thinking of something which had agitated her mind a hundred times before. A hundred times on the point of yielding, she had shrunk back from a sacrifice which she felt was too much for her. She couldn't, in spite of Dobbin's love and constancy and her own respect and gratitude— what is constancy? What is merit? One curl of a girl's ringlet, one hair of a whisker, will turn the scale against them in a minute. 
when in the afternoon the Major gained admission to Amelia, instead of the usual cordial and affectionate greeting, he received a curtsy, and a little gloved hand retracted the moment after it was offered. Rebecca, too, was in the room, and advanced to meet him with a smile. Dobbin drew back, rather confusedly. "'I—I <clears throat> I beg your pardon, ma'am,' he said, "'but I am bound to tell you that it is not as your friend that I am come here.' "'Oh, pooh, don't let's have this sort of thing,' Joss cried out, alarmed and anxious. "'I wonder what Major Dobbin has to say against Rebecca.' Amelia said, in a low, clear voice, with a slight quiver in it, and a very determined look about the eyes. "'I will not have this sort of thing in my house,' Joss again interposed. "'Dobbin, I beg, sir, you'll stop it.' And trembling and turning very red, he gave a great puff and made for his door. "'Oh, dear friend,' Rebecca said, with angelic sweetness, "'Do hear what Major Dobbin has to say against me.' "'I will not hear it!' squeaked out Joss at the top of his voice, and he was gone. "'We are only two women,' Amelia said. "'You can speak now, sir.' "'This manner towards me scarcely becomes you, Amelia,' the Major answered haughtily. "'Nor, I believe, am I guilty of habitual harshness to women.' It is not a pleasure to me to do the duty which I am come to do. Pray proceed with it quickly, if you please, Major Dobbin, said Amelia, who was more and more in a pet. The expression of Dobbin's face as she spoke in this imperious manner was not pleasant. I, I came to say, and I must say it in your presence, Mrs. Crawley, that I think you ought not to form a member of the family of my friends. A lady who is separated from her husband, who travels not under her own name, who frequents public gaming tables. It was to the ball I went, cried out Becky, is not a fit companion for Mrs. Osborne and her son. Dobbin went on, and I may add that there are people here who know that regarding your conduct, about which I don't even wish to speak before Mrs. Osborne. "'Yours is a very convenient sort of calumny, Major Dobbin,' Rebecca said. "'You leave me under the weight of an accusation, which, after all, is unsaid. "'What is it? Is it unfaithfulness to my husband? "'I scorn it, and defy anybody to prove it. "'My honour is as untouched as that of the bitterest enemy who ever maligned me. "'Is it of being poor, forsaken, wretched, that you accuse me? "'Yes.' "'I am guilty of those faults and punished for them every day. "'No, let me go, Emmy. "'I am no worse off today than I was yesterday. "'The poor wanderer is on her way. "'Don't you remember the song we used to sing in dear old days? "'I have been wandering ever since then, a poor castaway. "'No, let me go. "'My stay here interferes with the plans of this gentleman.' "'Indeed it does, madam,' said the Major. "'If I have any authority in this house—' "'Authority! None!' broke out Amelia. "'Rebecca, you stay with me. "'I won't insult you because Major Dobbin chooses to do so. "'Come away, dear.' "'And the two women made for the door. "'William opened it. "'As they were going out, however, he took Amelia's hand and said, "'Will you stay a moment and speak to me?' 
He wishes to speak to you away from me, said Becky, looking like a martyr. Amelia gripped her hand in reply. Upon my honor, it is not about you that I am going to speak, Dobbin said. Come back, Amelia. She came. Dobbin bowed to Mrs. Crawley as he shut the door upon her. Amelia looked at him. Her face and her lips were quite white. I was confused when I spoke just now, the Major said, after a pause, and I misused the word authority. You did? said Amelia. At least I have claims to be heard, Dobbin continued. It is generous to remind me of our obligations to you. The claims, I mean, are those left me by George's father, he said. Yes, and you insulted his memory. You did yesterday. You know you did. And I will never forgive you. Never, said Amelia. She shot out each little sentence in a tremor of anger and emotion. You don't mean that, Amelia, William said sadly. You don't mean that these words, uttered in a hurried moment, are to weigh against a whole life's devotion. I think that George's memory has not been injured by the way in which I have dealt with it. And if we are come to bandying reproaches, I at least merit none from his widow and the mother of his son. Reflect afterwards when you are at leisure, and your conscience will withdraw this accusation. It does even now. Amelia held down her head. It is not that speech of yesterday, he continued, which moves you. That is only the pretext, Amelia. "'or I have loved you and watched you for fifteen years in vain. "'Have I not learned to read all your feelings and look into your thoughts? "'I know what your heart is capable of. "'It can cling faithfully to a recollection and cherish a fancy, "'but it can't feel such an attachment as mine deserves to mate with, "'and such as I would have won from a woman more generous than you.' No, you are not worthy of the love which I have devoted to you. I knew all along that the prize I had set my life on was not worth the winning, that I was a fool with fond fancies, bartering away my truth and ardor against your feeble little remnant of love. Well, I will bargain no more. I withdraw. I find no fault with you. You are very good-natured and have done your best. But you couldn't, you couldn't reach up to the height of the attachment which I bore you, and which a loftier soul than yours might have been proud to share. Goodbye, Amelia. I have watched your struggle. Let it end. We are both weary of it. Amelia stood scared and silent as William thus suddenly broke the chain by which she had held him and declared his independence and superiority. He had placed himself at her feet so long that the poor little woman had been accustomed to trample upon him. She didn't wish to marry him, but she wished to keep him. She wished to give him nothing, but that he should give her all. She was quite cast down. Am I to understand, then, that, that you are going, going away, William? 
He gave a sad laugh. I went once before and came back after twelve years. We were young then, Amelia. Goodbye. I've spent enough of my life at this play. Whilst they had been talking, the door into Mrs. Osborne's room had opened ever so little. Indeed, Becky had kept hold of the handle and heard every word of the conversation. What a noble heart that man has, and how shamefully that woman plays with it. She admired Dobbin. She bore him no rancor for the part he had taken against her. It was an open move in the game, and played fairly. Ah, oh, if I could have had such a husband as that, a man with a heart and brains, too, I would not have minded his large feet. Running into her room, she wrote him a note, beseeching him to stop for a few days, not to think of going, that she could help him with A. The parting was over. Once more, poor William walked to the door and was gone, and the little widow had her will and had won her victory and was left to enjoy it as she best might. At dinner, Mr. Geordie again remarked the absence of old Dob. The meal was eaten in silence. Joss's appetite was not diminished, but Emmy ate nothing at all. After the meal, Georgie was lolling in the cushions of the old bay window which looked out on the marketplace when he noticed movement at the major's house on the other side of the street. Hello! There's Dobbs' carriage! They're bringing it out of the courtyard! Emmy gave a little start, but said nothing. Hello! Georgie continued. There's Francis coming out with the portmanteaus and the postillion. Why, they're putting the horses to Dobbs' carriage. Is he going anywhere? Yes, said Emmy. He is going on a journey. And when is he coming back? He is not coming back, answered Emmy. Not coming back, cried out Georgie, jumping up. Stay here, sir, roared out Joss. Stay, Georgie, said his mother, with a very sad face. The boy stopped kicked about the room, and jumped up and down from the window seat with uneasiness and curiosity. The horses were put to. The baggage was strapped on. Francis came out with his master's sword, cane, and umbrella, and laid them in the carriage, and placed his desk and old tin cocked hat case under the seat. Next, Francis brought out the stained old blue cloak, which had wrapped its owner up any time these fifteen years. It had been new for the campaign of Waterloo, and it covered George and William after the night of Quatre Bras. Old Burke, the landlord of the lodgings, came out, and then Major William. Burke wanted to kiss him. The Major was adored by all people with whom he had to do. It was with difficulty that he could escape. By Jove, I will go, screamed out George. Give him this, said Becky quite interested, and put a paper into the boy's hand. He rushed down the stairs and flung across the street. William had got into the carriage, but George bounded in after and flung his arms around the Major's neck, asking him multiplied questions. Then he felt in his waistcoat pocket and gave him a note. William seized it eagerly and opened it trembling, but instantly his face changed. 
He tore the paper in two and dropped it out of the carriage. He kissed Georgie on the head, and the boy got out, doubling his fists into his eyes. The postillion cracked his whip, up sprang Francis to the box, and away went Dobbin. He never looked up as they passed under Amelia's window, and Georgie, left alone in the street, burst out crying. Emmy's maid heard him howling again during the night and brought him some preserved apricots to console him. She mingled her lamentations with his. Oh, the poor, honest folks loved that kind-hearted and simple gentleman. As for Emmy, had she not done her duty? She had her picture of George for a consolation. Thanks for listening to... Marilyn Lightstone reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Neimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.